story is told of Jim and Edna, who were both patients in a mental hospital. One day while they were walking past the hospital swimming pool, Jim suddenly jumped into the deep end, sank to the bottom of the pool, and just sat there until he lost his breath. Edna promptly jumped in to save him, and she swam to the bottom. She pulled him out, gave him CPR, and saved his life. When the medical director became aware of Edna's heroic act, he immediately ordered her to be discharged from the hospital as he now considered her to be mentally stable. When he went to tell Edna the news, he said, Edna, I've got good news and bad news. He says, the good news is, is that you're being discharged since you were able to rationally respond to a crisis by jumping in and saving the life of another patient. And I've concluded that your act displays sound mindness. So the bad news, however, is that Jim, the patient you saved, hung himself right after you saved him with his bathrobe belt in the bathroom. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but he is dead. Edna replied with a smile on her face, and she said, he didn't hang himself. I just hung him there to dry. Hey, you know what? And never forget, you don't pay to get in here. Tape's free, CD's free, just about everything's free now. You guys got to go, wow, what a high standard that you all of a sudden you're setting. This, this, this past week, I had an opportunity to, um, and you'll tell it again and again this week that other people, you know, I know how you people are, you know, you're, that, that hypocrisy, just reeking of it. A couple of years ago, as I was traveling to the Angel Spring Training Facility in Tempe, Arizona, I encountered, I encountered a man on the flight who had a rather limited view of God's abilities, of God's power. As he watched me work on a Bible study, he finally got up the nerve to ask the following question. He said this. He said, uh, surely you don't believe all you read in the Bible, do you? I said, well, actually I do. And he continued to say, come on, you know, some of the stories are a little far-fetched, aren't they? And I asked him, I said, well, which ones are you referring to? He says, well, like the so-called miracles, you know, Jesus walking on water and feeding, you know, thousands of people with a couple of fish and a couple, you know, pieces of bread or, you know, healing all these diseases. He said, you know, how do you explain those types of events? I mean, come on now, a rational, logical person, you know, certainly wouldn't believe such things like that. You know, I thought about it for a second and I came back to him with this. I said, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Which do you think is more difficult? Creating the water out of nothing or walking on it? (laughs) Said creating and providing the world's food supply or simply multiplying it? Said or creating mankind or healing man? Said which is the bigger miracle? You know, skepticism reminds me of two stories that I want to share. The first is told of nine-year-old Joey. Nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he had learned in Sunday school, and he said this. He said, well, Mom, he goes, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. When he got to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge, and all the people walked across safely. Then he used his walkie-talkies to radio headquarters for reinforcement. They sent bombers, man, to blow up the bridge, and all the Israelites were saved. And his mom went, now, Joey, now is that really what your teacher taught you today in Sunday school? And he looked at her and said, well, no, mom. But if I told it the way she told it, you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) 
You know what I mean? You know, the second story involves an older woman who was verbally, verbally being berated by a man who questioned her as to how she could be as so stupid to believe what she was reading in the Bible. After several minutes, the woman kindly asked him to give an example of what he thought was so hard to believe, and he immediately came to her with the story of Jonah being swallowed by a whale, a great fish, lived in the belly of this great fish for three days and was spit out alive after three days. And he looked at her in a rather sarcastic way and said, you know what, how, how in the world can you explain something as crazy as that? How did he survive? And she said, well, you know what, I'm not really sure, uh, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. So the man turned her and said, yeah, well, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? What if Jonah went to hell? And she thought for a minute and smiled and said, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) And then I think she said, bless your heart. (laughs) I don't know. Stories told of a CHP officer who's sitting alongside of the freeway near an intersection in downtown Los Angeles to catch speeding drivers when he sees a car puttering along at about 10 miles an hour. He thought to himself, you know, this driver is just as dangerous as any speeder. So he turns on his lights, pulls the driver over, and approaching the car, he notices that there are five older women in the car, two in the front seat and three in the back, eyes wide open and white as ghosts. The driver, obviously confused, says to him, Officer, I don't understand. I was, I was doing exactly the speed limit. What seems to be the problem? The officer said, Well, you weren't speeding, but you should know that driving slower than the speed limit can be just as dangerous as speeding. She said, I wasn't. She said, I was going exactly the speed limit. And she points to the freeway sign. And the officer looks, and he starts to chuckle to himself, and he says, Well... Ma'am, that's not the speed limit. That's actual, that's the freeway sign. That's the 10 freeway. <laughs> and and uh, so he goes, oh, I'm going to just, you know, get, let you off with a warning. And, and he said, but, but before I leave, I noticed that, you know, is everyone in here okay? No one said a word since I came up to the car. And you're all just frozen in your seats. And the driver, she started laughing. She said, well, that's because we just got off the Harbor 110 freeway. <laughs> It's like, I thought, wow, you know, once again, we learn that things aren't always as they first appear. Thank you. In honor of our friends from uh, Tennessee and the Ozark area, the following story is told. (laughs) Of two old geezers that were living in the backwoods by the names of Clarence and Rufus. They lived on opposite sides of the river, and they hated each other. And every morning, just after sunup, Rufus and Clarence would go down to their respective sides of the riverbank, look across the river, and yell the following to each other. Rufus, Clarence would yell. He goes, you better thank your lucky stars. I can't swim, or I'd swim this river and whoop on you. Clarence, Rufus would holler back, you better thank your lucky stars. I can't swim, or I'd swim this river and whoop on you. And every morning, every day, for 20 years, this occurred. Then one day, the Army Corps of Engineers came along and built a bridge across the river. (laughs) But the insults continued to go on every morning, every day again for another five years. Finally, Rufus's wife had had enough. She said, Rufus, I can't take it no more. 
Every day for 25 years, you've been threatened to whoop Clarence. Well, there's the bridge. Have at it. Rufus thought for a moment, chewed on his bottom lip for another moment, and said, Woman, you're right. I'm going to go whoop on Clarence. He walked out out the door down to the river, along the riverbank, came to the bridge, stepped onto the bridge, began to walk across, and halfway over the bridge, he saw something. He went screaming back to the house, slammed the door, bolted the windows, grabbed his shotgun, dove under the bed. Rufus cried out his missus. He said, I thought you were going to whoop Clarence. He said, I was, woman, I was. She said, then what in tarnation happened? He said, well, he said, I walked halfway across the bridge and I saw a sign that said, Clarence, 13 feet, 6 inches. (laughs) He ain't never looked that big from the other side of the river. Several years ago, uh, while working with the then L.A. Rams, the following story was told of a former NFL player who was currently living in Detroit, Michigan. And after his short, highlightless career, he went to work at General Motors in the public relations department, only to be let go, laid off during a recession. And uh, desperate and ill-prepared in the job market, he had heard through a friend at the Detroit Zoo that a very popular gorilla had got sick and died, and up to this point, the public had yet to hear of this tragedy. The management of the zoo had an idea for him to consider. They offered him a job as the gorilla's temporary replacement. All he had to do was dress up in a gorilla suit, entertain the visitors, and the job was his until the money could be quietly raised for a permanent gorilla replacement. Well, as a former linebacker who had obviously taken one too many hits to the head, He took the job and soon found himself enjoying his new gig. Scratching, grunting, eating with his hands, beating his chest all came naturally to him anyway. And the crowd loved him. You know, then there came that faithful day when the zookeeper inadvertently opened the back of the door to where the gorilla pen was and a lion was let in. And as the lion came in and he was looking at this lion, he realized he was in trouble. And he began to scream for help. Get me out of here. Help. Somebody get me out of here. Help. Get me out of here. And he was losing it, man. He got him cornered and the lion kept coming toward him and a quarter against the wall that was there. And he was screaming and yelling at the top of his voice, but it was muffled because of the gorilla suit. And he was just about ready to die of a heart attack when he heard the lion say, Hey, be quiet, man. If they hear you, we're both going to lose our job. (laughs) Things aren't always as they appear. (laughs) The story is told of a recent meeting of the Pope and his cardinals to discuss a proposal from the Prime Minister of Israel. Your holiness, said one of the cardinals, the prime minister of Israel wants to challenge you to a game of golf to show the friendship and ecumenical spirit shared by the Jewish and the Catholic faiths. The pope thought it was a good idea, but he had never held a golf club in his hands. He asked around if any of the cardinals have and said, we have not either. Is there any cardinal who can represent me against the leader of Israel? Well, none that can play very well was the answer. But there is a man named Jack Nicholas. He's an American golfer who is a devout Catholic. We can offer to make him a cardinal, then ask him to play the Israeli prime minister. 
as your personal representative. In addition to showing our spirit of cooperation, we will also win the match. Everyone agreed, thought it was a great idea. The call was made, and of course, Nicholas was honored, and he agreed to play on behalf of the Vatican. The day after the match, Nicholas reported to the Vatican to inform the Pope of the result. He said, Your Holiness, I have some good news and some bad news. Well, tell me the good news first, Cardinal Nicholas, said the Pope. <laughs> said, Well, Your Holiness, I don't like to brag, but even though I've played some pretty terrific rounds of golf in my lifetime, this was the best I have played so far. I must have been inspired from above. My drives were long and true, my irons were accurate and purposeful, and my putting was perfect. With all due respect, my play was truly miraculous. The Pope said, well, there's bad news. Nicholas sighed, said, well, I lost by three strokes to Rabbi Tiger Woods. <laughs> well, you know, things aren't all, always as they may appear. One of my all-time favorite stories is told of a uh, new preacher who came to deliver his first sermon in a uh, country church, but no one showed up but one cowhand. The preacher wondered aloud whether to proceed with the service. The man replied, he says, I can't tell you what to do. I don't know much about preaching. I'm just a cowhand. But if I came to feed my cows, only one showed up, I'd be darned if I wouldn't feed her. So a preacher thanked him and gave the prepared sermon that he had. He got excited about it, and he got so excited about the word and the message that he was preaching that 35 minutes turned into 40 minutes, turned into 45 to an hour. He took off his coat, and he loosened his tie, and it went on for about 90 minutes. And man, he was pounding the pulpit. He was just g- delivering the goods. And at the end of all of it, he closed in prayer, and he asked the one guy who was there, he said, so what do you think of that? And the guy goes, well, you know what? I don't know much about preaching. I don't know much about sermon preparation. I don't know much about anything. I'm just a cowhand. But I know that if I went out to feed my cattle and only one cow showed up, I'd be darned if I dumped the whole wagon of hay on her. <laughs> you know, I love that story, and I think it because I resemble that remark. <clears throat> In fact, uh, I got an email not long ago, and it was like, I think it was a joke. But... Um, <laughs> Perhaps you can relate to it. There's a little boy who's at church, and he asked the following question. He said, Daddy, what does it mean when Pastor Chuck takes off his watch and he puts it on the pulpit in front of him when he starts his sermons? The dad thought about it and said, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. It means nothing. So anyway... One of, the, uh, one of the truths I've come to learn in life is that timing is everything. And uh, consider the story that was told recently of a parish priest who was being honored at a dinner on the 30th anniversary of his arrival at that parish. A leading politician who also was a member of that church was chosen to make the presentation and give a speech at dinner, but the politician was delayed in traffic, so the priest decided to say a few words uh, while they waited patiently for his arrival. He went on to say, you understand that the seal of the confessional can never be broken. He says, however, I got my first impressions of this parish from the first confession that I heard here. I can only vaguely hint about this, but when I came here 30 years ago, I thought I had been assigned to a terrible church. 
The very first gentleman who entered my confessional told me how he had stolen a television set and when stopped by the police, he almost murdered the police officer. He went on and told me he had embezzled money from his place of business and later had had an affair with his boss's wife. As you can imagine, I was appalled by what I was hearing. As the days went on, I realized, however, that not all of you were like that. And I indeed had come to a fine place filled with people of understanding and loving kindness. Just as he had finished his talk, the politician arrived running up to the stage being late. He immediately began to make his presentation to the priest. And he said, you know what, I'll never forget the day that Father Smith first arrived in our parish. He said, in fact, I had the honor of being the first one to go into his confessional. There are just some things you want to know before you step up to speak. Isn't that the truth? Timing is everything. The following story is told of a pastor who walked into a neighborhood pub. He was in desperate need of using the restroom. He walked in the place was hopping with music and with dancing and drinking. And every now and then the lights would go out. It would be dark, and then it would be followed by an eruption of a cheer from the crowd. When somebody noticed the pastor, however, all the revelry stopped, and the room got very quiet. I can relate. I don't know if you can. Been there. Feeling a little awkward and out of place, the pastor went to the bartender and asked, May I please use your restroom? And the bartender replied, I, I, I really don't think that you should. He said, for heaven's sakes, I need to go to the bathroom. Can you show me the restroom? He said, why can't I use it? He said, well, to be honest with you, there's a large statue of a woman in there, and I'm afraid it would offend you. You know, being a pastor and all, she's only wearing a fig leaf over, well, you know what I'm talking about. And the pastor said, you know what, that's nonsense. I'll just look the other way and still feeling very self-conscious in the quiet room. He entered the men's room. After a few minutes, he emerged. The whole place was filled with music and dancing again. Everyone was giving him an enthusiastic round of applause. Several came over to him, put their arms around him, slapped him on the back, and they, and they led him to the bar where they presented him with a drink free on the house. The pastor couldn't figure out what in the world had happened from the time that he came in to the time he went to the bathroom to the time that he came out. He says, I don't understand what happened. And the bartender said, they all know that you're one of us. And he said... I- what do you mean that I'm, I'm one of you? I, I don't understand. How, how would they come to that conclusion? And the bartender smiled in a moment. He slid him another drink, and he said, well, when the fig leaf on the statue is lifted, the lights go out. <laughs> Oops. Stories told of the following two friends who were out pheasant hunting. They approached a farm that had a huge cornfield in it, an ideal place to, to hunt pheasant. They decided to go to the farmer and ask for permission to hunt on his land. Uh, the friends, Jim and Mark, Mark told Jim, you stay out here at the gate. I'll go knock to the door and find out from the farmer if it's okay if we'll go ahead and hunt there. So after Mark explained their desires, the farmer replied, you know what, that's fine for you to hunt on our land, but I have one request. He said, if you look over that direction and you see that old gray mare over there, well, she ain't what she used to be. No, I just made that up. But, uh, but she's sick and dying, and she needs to be put down, and, you know, because she's been so good to us all these years that we can't bear to do it. Um, but if you'll shoot my horse, you can hunt on our farm. So Mark told the farmer it would be hard for him as well, but he'd be glad to do it uh, to help them out. And as he walked back to meet Jim at the gate, he decided to pull a mean trick on him. He goes over to him. He says, man, that lousy, no-good farmer, he's got this huge farm. 
and he won't let us hunt on it. He goes, you know what? I can't believe that he said no. I'm going to teach him a lesson. You see that old mare over there? He took his rifle. He took aim. Pow, pow, two shots. Pulled the trigger, shot the horse. He heard behind him two more shots going out from a rifle behind him. He turned and saw Jim lowering his rifle, and he said, man, that was a great shot, Mark. You got the horse. I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. (laughs) The story is told of a young young man by the name of Joe who was taking a course in ornithology, which is the study of birds. The night before the biggest test of the term, Joe spent all night studying he had, uh, you know, he had the textbook nearly memorized. He knew his class notes forward and backwards. Joe was ready to go. So the morning of the test, he entered the auditorium filled with confidence. He took a seat in the front row, and on the table in front of him was a row of ten stuffed birds. Each bird had a sack covering its body, and only the legs were showing. When class started, the professor announced that the students were to identify each bird by looking at its legs and give its common name, genus, species, habitat, mating habits, and anything else they wanted to share about their understanding of the birds. Joe looked at each of the birds' legs, and you know what? They all looked the same to him. And the more he looked at the legs, the angrier he got because this wasn't in any of his notes. He stayed up all night studying for this test. He thought he could identify them. There's no way in the world he was going to be able to do it by looking at their legs. And the longer he thought about it, the angrier that he got. And finally, in frustration, he walked down, he took his paper, he sat on a professor's desk, and he said, you know what, this is the biggest ripoff of a test I've ever had to sit and endure. That's not even right. That's not even fair. You never told anything about studying its legs. I can tell you everything and anything, but I can't recognize a bird by its legs. I've had enough. And he just walked, he stormed out. Man, he made a big scene in front of everybody, and the professor kind of caught a little bit off guard, looked at him and said, hey, hey, son, what's your name? And he stopped and just stopped as he got to the door. He said, you want to know my name? (laughs) Here, tell me my name. (laughs) As he held up his leg. You know, and it's like, as I thought about it, what a great story. On a foggy night, the uh, ship's captain saw what what appeared to be the lights of another ship heading his direction. He instructed his signal man to contact the other ship by signal light. He sent this message, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The reply came back, change your course 10 degrees to the south. The captain responded, I am a captain, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The response was, I am a seaman first class, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the captain was furious as he obviously outranked the seaman. He had his signalman reply, I am a battleship. You change your course 10 degrees to the north. The final reply was, I am a lighthouse. You change your course 10 degrees to the south. I love that story. You know, though funny, it reminds me of the not-so-funny reality that many folks today are like the captain. They think too highly of themselves, which in turn affects negatively sound judgment. An elderly Italian man lay dying in his bed. 
while suffering the agonies of impending death, he suddenly smelled the aroma of his favorite Italian anisette sprinkle cookies wafting up the stairs. He gathered his remaining strength, lifted himself from the bed, leaned against the wall, slowly made his way out of the bedroom, and gripping the railing with both hands, he crawled downstairs and with labored breath leaned against the door frame and gazed into the kitchen. Were it not for death's agony, he would have thought himself already in heaven. For spread out on wax paper on the kitchen table were literally hundreds of his favorite innocent sprinkle cookies. Was it heaven? Or was it one final act of love from his devoted Italian wife of 60 years, seeing that he left this world a happy man? Mustering one great final effort, he threw himself towards the table, landed on his knee in a rumpled posture. The aged and withered hand trembled on its way to a cookie at the edge of the table. And just as he had it within his reach, suddenly he was smacked with a spatula by his wife who said, Back off, they're for the funeral. A few years ago, Cotton Fitzsimmons, who was a, had a very uh, successful coaching career in the National Basketball Association, uh, found himself coaching a not-so-very-good team. In fact, the team he was coaching that year was so bad that it was on its way to, become, to becoming the all-time losingest team in NBA history. So he was challenged to find a new way to motivate his despondent players, and he came up with what he would go on to call his let's pretend strategy. And so he gathered everybody together, the team, before the, before the game, and his traditional pregame pep talk, and he told them the following. He said, gentlemen, he said, let's pretend we're the returning NBA champions, and today our opponent is here to take that title from us. He said, let's pretend it's game seven of the NBA finals and that we are the best team with the best players playing before the best fans in the NBA. Let's pretend we're undefeated and that a victory today would make us the all-time greatest team in NBA history. And he went on for another 30 minutes, and I know I've seen this happen before. How in the world he did it, I don't know. But he went on for another 30 minutes with his let's pretend strategy. And by the time he was done, everyone was fired up. They were like, man, they, were, they couldn't wait to get out and hit the hardwood. And they were fired up. They got out there, and for the first quarter, they played inspired basketball. It was unbelievable that this same group that was such a losing team could go out and dominate the way that they did in the first quarter. And then reality set in. <laughs> then there was a second quarter, and a third, and a fourth. And make a long story short, they went on to lose that game by the largest margin they had lost any game all season long. And they all went back into the locker room, despondent, their heads down. It was a desperate situation. And, and Coach Fitzsimmons, who has never at a loss for words how to motivate men, didn't know what to say. And it was just deathly quiet in the room. And finally, one of his players, recognizing what was going on, stood up in the middle of everybody and said, Coach... Don't feel so bad. Just pretend we won. (laughs) Anyway, the uh, story is told of a miracle service which was to be held on a Sunday afternoon in a small city. The event was promoted by several radio stations and in the local newspaper an ad read as follows. Healing service this Sunday at 1 o'clock. 
Come Sunday, the place was just packed with expectant townsfolk seeking healing. There was an air of electricity, uh, almost as it were, a spiritual St. Elmo's fire. The healer took to the stage and proceeded to fire up the audience. He said, is there any among you sick today? Do you want to be healed? Who has the faith to come up to the stage? Come up right now. Up came the first man on crutches, and he asked him, he said, sir, what's your name? And he said, my name is Harold. He said, Harold, do you wish to be healed? He said, yes, sir, I do. And he hit him on the forehead, and he said, then you're healed. And he took the crutches from Harold, and he threw him out in the audience. The audience went crazy, and the attendants carried, walked, walked Harold off to the back behind the curtains where he would stand throughout the course of the service. Next up stepped a man with, apparent, with no apparent visible ailment, and he said, son, what's your name? He says, my, 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 my name, name, name is Jimmy. He said, Jimmy, do you wish to be healed? And he said, yes, sir. He goes, okay, Jimmy, then you're healed. And he took him and he hit him again on the top of his head. And then the crowd was going crazy. And they led Jimmy off to the backstage where Harold was taken off. And there was a big commotion back there. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And the faith healer yelled back behind the curtain. He said, Jimmy, what's happened? Say something. What's going on? And from behind the curtain, he heard Jimmy say, Harold fell down. The following story is told of an old miser who was on his deathbed and at that time called in his doctor, his lawyer, and his minister. He said, gentlemen, I'm, a, I'm going to disprove the myth that you cannot take it with you. Under my mattress are three envelopes, each containing $30,000. I want each of you to take one now and then throw it in the grave just before they shovel in the dirt. At the funeral... Each threw his envelope into the grave, and as they left the cemetery, the minister started to feel guilty, and he said, I don't feel right about this. I've got something to confess. He says, I needed $10,000 very badly for our church building program, and I thought, what a waste it is to throw the money in, so I kept 10000 and threw in only 20000 At that point, the doctor said, man, I'm so glad you said something, because I needed money for a new wing of the hospital, and I thought it was too, too that it was a waste. And so I kept $20,000 and threw in 10000 The attorney couldn't believe what he was hearing. He said, I'm shocked. I'm ashamed at you both. How could you withhold that money? He said, I kept the $30,000, but at least I threw in a personal check for the full amount. <laughs> Several years ago... When our uh, son was about six or seven years old, we were spending the day together, and it was in the summertime, and he didn't have school, and so I thought what I'd do is spend a, a day with him. Took him out to a construction site, showed him what was going on, and he was just amazed, man. His eyeballs were popping out as he looked around and saw all the activity, saw the trucks and the, you know, and the tractors and the, the graders that were going, and you, know, you hear the constant motion and noise that's out there, and you hear trucks backing up, and you hear the beep, 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 beep of trucks backing up, and I tell him, Ryan, you know, be careful when you hear that. That means the truck's backing up, and so we spent the day together, went to a bank right afterwards, and as we were standing in line at the bank, Ryan was in line, and he was standing next to me, and right in front of us was a woman who was a rather large woman and she uh, worked for UPS and Ryan as he was standing behind her he said in not a real quiet voice he said dad look how big her bottom is and you know and you got to understand it was about eye level and so that was that was the observation that he was making at the time 
And, and I said, you know what, Ryan, you know, that's not, it's not, you don't say that. And he was like, man, look how big her legs are. Her legs are huge. And it was like, she was going, and I was like, hey, listen, you know what? And it was, it was kind of like, you got to be quiet. And just then, this woman's pager went off. And, and he hears beep, 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 and yells at the top of his voice, Dad, look out, she's backing up. And it's, and it's a, a, a moment in your life where you just kind of go. And so after we jumped backwards, we had an interesting rest of the day. But every time I think of that and I think of that story, it reminds me how easy it is to sometimes make a wrong interpretation of a situation. The following story is told of a woman pilot who decided she wanted to expand her resume and learn how to fly a helicopter, so she proceeded down to the local airport only to discover that the only helicopter at that particular airport was a solo helicopter. Well, the instructor figured he could probably let her go up since she was already licensed to fly small planes and he could instruct her via radio. And so she got into the helicopter and off she went. She reached about 1,000 feet and everything was going well. She reached 2,000 feet and the woman instructor continued to talk via radio and everything was going great. She got to 3,000 feet and all of a sudden the helicopter just dropped like a rock out of the sky. The instructor couldn't figure out what happened. He jumped in his Jeep. He drove to the area that he knew that she was and there she was getting out of the helicopter. And he said, what happened? She said, well, at 1,000 feet, everything was going great, and at 2,000 feet, things were going wonderful, and, but when I got to 3,000 feet, I started to get cold, so I shut off the ceiling fan. <laughs> so anybody with a wife who gets cold will understand that, you know, sometimes things like that happen, but, you know, the point is sometimes it's easy to miss the obvious. The story is told of a man, we'll give the name Jim. Due to a business trip to Europe, he leaves his prized cat Bootsy at the home of his brother in his care. From Europe, he calls to check on Bootsy only to hear the following. He says, I don't know how to tell you this, but I went out to get the newspaper and I forgot that Bootsy was staying with us. She ran out of the door. She ran up a tree. She jumped onto the roof and she was there for about an hour playing around on the roof. I tried to do everything I could to get her to come down, but unfortunately, Bootsy slipped, fell to the driveway. Bootsy died. His brother is shocked by this. And more so, he was shocked at just the callous way that he presented the story. And after a little interchange, his Jim came back and said, well, how, how should I have told you? He said, well, what you could have said is that, you know, I went out to get the paper and Bootsy ran out and, you know, went up a tree and jumped up onto the roof of the house and you tried to get her down and she slipped and fell, but everything appeared to be okay. But just as a precaution, you took her to the vet just to have her checked out. Then when I called back the next day and I asked how Bootsy was, you could say, well, you know, the doctor, the vet thinks everything's okay, but he just wants to keep another day just as an observation. And, uh, and then when I called you back the third day, you could have said, well, you know what, D- during the course of the night, Bootsy kind of had a turn for the worse, but, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen. And then on the fourth day when I called you, you could have said, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, I don't know how to tell you this, but Bootsy had a turn for the worst, and, and Bootsy, Bootsy is no longer with us. And his brother went, wow, you know, I, I really didn't think about that. You know, I'm sorry that you took it that way. And, they, and he said, will you forgive me? He said, sure, I'll forgive you. And, you know, and he said, by the way, you know, how's mom doing? 
And, uh, you know, he thought about it for a second. He said, uh, she's up on the roof playing. <laughs> Great to see everybody here this morning. You know, have you ever invited a friend or a co-worker or a family member to church only to hear them say, if I showed up at church, the ceiling would cave in? Has anybody, have you heard that? All right, now, the next time you will be prepared when you ask somebody and they say that to you, tell them this. By the same reasoning, you should avoid riding in automobiles because they're responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents in the United States. Well, whatever you do, don't stay at home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Also, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Avoid travel by air, rail, or water because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. Of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in hospitals, and above all else, avoid hospitals. Amen to that. Hey, <laughs> amen. You'll be amazed to learn that only one-tenth of one percent of all deaths occur during worship services in church. <laughs> and these are usually related to previous physical disorders. Therefore, reasoning, logic, tells us that the safest place to be at any given point in time is at church. Very good. Also, Bible study is a safe place to be too. Surprisingly, the percentage of deaths during Bible study are even less, unless, of course, you're having them in a home and you've either driven or walked to get there. So I'm not sure, but I, but I think that the moral of the story is attend church and read your Bible. It could save your life. One of my all-time favorite stories is told of a uh, fellow at the post office whose job it was to look at undeliverable or kind of illegible addresses. One day he came across a letter, and the letter was addressed to God. And he didn't know quite what to do about it, but obviously he wanted to do something, so he opened it up, and he thought, oh boy. As he began to read, it said, Dear God, I'm an 83-year-old widow living on a very small pension. Yesterday, someone stole my purse, and I had $100 in it, which was all the money that I had until my next pension check. Next Thursday is Thanksgiving, and I invited two of my friends over for Thanksgiving dinner, but without the $100, I have nothing to buy food with. I have no family to turn to, and you are my only hope. Can you please help me? Well, as you can imagine, the postal worker was touched, and he was moved by what he had read, and he showed it to his fellow employees, and they took up a collection, and at the end of the day, they came up with $96. And they put it in an envelope, and they delivered it to her home anonymously and left it there at the door. And they were pretty excited about what they had done, this good deed that they had done. And as a, a week or so went by, a letter came, and it looked like the same handwriting addressed again to God. And he opened it up, and he was so excited to read what was in there. And he read, Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you did for me? Because of your generosity, I was able to fix a lovely dinner for my friends. We had a great day, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift. She said, P.S., there was $4 missing. It was probably those thieves down at the post office. <laughs> Several years ago, while visiting Switzerland, I had heard the following story, which illustrates the importance of defining terms in order to ensure clear understanding in communicating a message. 
The story is told of a little old English lady who was looking for a room in Switzerland. She asked the local village schoolmaster to help her out. A place that suited her was finally found, and the woman returned to London for her luggage. Upon arrival in London, she remembered she had not noticed a bathroom, or as she called it, a water closet. So she wrote to the schoolmaster. He was puzzled by the initials WC, as she was a proper woman and would not actually spell it out. Never dreaming that she was inquiring about a bathroom, he finally asked the parish priest who decided WC had to stand for the Wesleyan Chapel. So the schoolmaster thus replied, Dear Madam, the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful grove of trees. It is capable of holding 350 people at a time and is open each Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. A large number of folks attend during the summer, so it's suggested you go early, although there's plenty of standing room. Some people like to take their lunches and make a day of it, especially on Thursday when there is an organ accompaniment. The acoustics are very good, and everyone can hear the slightest sound. You may be interested to know that my daughter met her husband and was married in our WC. We hope you'll be here in time for our upcoming bazaar. The proceeds will go toward the purchase of plush seats, plush seats, which the folks agree are a long-felt need, as the present seats all have holes in them. My wife is rather delicate, therefore she cannot attend regularly. It's been six months since the last time that she went. Naturally, it pains her very much not to be able to go more often. I shall close now with the desire to accommodate you in every way possible. I will be happy to save you a seat down front or near the door, whichever you prefer. Okay, the story is told of a uh, minister who was preoccupied with thoughts of how he was going to, after the worship service, ask the congregation to come up with more money than they were expecting for repairs to the church building. Therefore, he was annoyed when he found that the regular organist did not show up that day, and in his place was a substitute. And he went over to him, and the, and the substitute organist said, you know, what do you want me to play? He goes, you know what, I don't have time to think about it. You know, just, I, you just need to come up with something on your own after I make the announcement about the finances. And he went and he did his thing. And then during the service, the minister paused and said, brothers and sisters, we are in great difficulty, for the roof repairs cost twice as much as we expected. And we need $40,000 more than what we anticipated. And any of you who could pledge $1,000 or more, would you please stand up? And at that moment, the substitute organist played the Star-Spangled Banner. (laughs) And that is how the substitute organist became the new organist for the church. Stories told of a young man who went out and bought himself a Ferrari Testarossa, one of the most expensive cars that are out on the market, one of the most incredible sports cars that have ever been manufactured. And he was out taking it for a spin, and he came into a red light. And at the red light, alongside him, along his driver's door, pulled up a moped with an older gentleman on it. He was about 90. The moped was about 110. And, uh, you know, I was looking at this car, and, and he knocked on the window, and the guy put the window down, and he looked inside and said, man, this is a really nice car. What kind of car is it? He said, this is a Ferrari Testarossa. It's one of the most uh, expensive and one of the quickest cars ever manufactured. It cost a half a million bucks. And the old guy looked in the window and said, wow, can I, can I look inside? And he kind of leaned over and he looked inside and said, man, this is a pretty nice car. And just then the light turns green and this guy thought, wow, I'm going to show this old guy what this car is all about. And he just hit it, man. And he just took off and he went flying down the road. 
Within like 30 or 60 seconds, he had been up over 180 to 200 miles an hour. And as he stopped and he kind of smiled and, you know, proud of himself, he looked in his rearview mirror and he saw this little dot. This little dot was coming, coming at him quick. And he's looking at that dot trying to figure out what's going on. All of a sudden, the dot's all on him and it went flying by a driver's side. And he looked over and it was a blur. But he, man, it looked like the guy in the moped. And he just sat there kind of stunned, and all of a sudden, he sees him coming back this way again. He goes flying back again, and he goes, man, what in the world's going on? And he looks in the rearview mirror, and here he comes again for the third time. But this time, he doesn't go past him. He goes right in the back and slams in the back of his Ferrari. And he's laying on the street, and the guy can't figure out what in the world's going on. He goes out, and he looks at him and says, you know, are are you all right? Is there anything I can do for you? And he looked at him and said, well, you could take my suspenders from your your side-view mirror. (laughs) The story is told of a woman who received a phone call at work that her daughter was sick with a fever. And so she left the office and she stopped by the pharmacy to get some medication. And uh, upon returning to her car, she noticed that in her haste, she accidentally locked her keys in the car. She went back and used the phone and called the babysitter and told her what was going on and was kind of stymied as to what to do. And the babysitter said, well, you know what, see if you can find a clothes hanger and maybe you can just kind of jimmy the door open. So she looked around and sure enough found an old uh, coat hanger and opened it up and started to jim- try to get inside and she couldn't do it and she became frustrated and, she, and she, she bowed her head and she said, Lord, you know, please send someone to help me. And within 10 minutes or so, an old rusty car pulled up with a dirty, greasy, bearded man who was wearing an old biker skull cap on his head and the woman thought, great, th- this is who you sent to help? And uh, although she was desperate, she, she asked, and she was grateful, and the man got out of his car and asked if he could do something to help her, and she explained what was going on, and uh, that her daughter was sick, that she ran in the pharmacy, came back out, locked her keys in the car, and she was trying to get in, and he said, well, here, give me that hanger. And within like 30 seconds, he had popped the, the door open. And she said, oh, that's so great, you're such a nice man. And he looked at her and said, you know what, lady, I'm, I'm not a nice man. I just got out of prison today. I was in prison for five years for Grand Theft Auto. I've only been out for about an hour. And she went over to him, hugged him again, and she looked up sobbing, and she praised God saying, God, thank you for sending me a professional. (laughs) You know, there's a woman with an attitude of gratitude. Uh, One of my favorite, all-time favorite stories is told of uh, the head of a large company who needed to call one of his employees about an urgent problem he was having at the office. He picked up the phone. He dialed the employee's home phone number, and he was greeted with a child's whispered, Hello? And uh, feeling a little put out by the inconvenience of having to talk to a youngster, the boss asked, Is your daddy home? To which the small voice whispered again, Yes. He said, well, may I talk to him? And to his surprise, the small voice answered, no. And wanting to talk with an adult, the boss then said, well, is your mommy home? And again, he heard, yes. He said, well, can I talk to her? And again, he said, no. And now knowing that it was not likely that this young child would be left alone, the boss decided to ask, is there someone else that's there watching over this child? And said, is there anyone else there besides you? And the little boy again answered, yes. Well, who? said, a policeman. said, a policeman? He said, well, what, what, can I talk to him? He said, no. So why not? So he's busy talking to mommy and daddy and the firemen 
He said, what? And he's getting a little bit nervous, and he heard what it would sound like a helicopter in the background. He said, well, what's that noise? And the little boy said, that's a helicopter. And all of a sudden, the little boy goes, oh, wow, just landed in the front yard. And this guy was getting a little bit shook up, and he's, he's what, what, what are they doing? He goes, they're looking for me. <laughs> The, uh, the story is told of a devoted wife who spent her lifetime uh, supporting and encouraging her husband. She had, for over 40 years, been his biggest cheerleader. And now, as his life was coming to an end, she was at his bedside every single day. And one day, he motioned her to come nearer so he could whisper something to her. And as she sat next to him, he said, You know what, honey? He said, You have always been there. You have always been there through all the bad times. When I lost my job, you were there. When my business failed, you were there. When our house burned down, you were there. When I had my first heart attack, you were there again. And now, as I'm about to die, here you are again with me. And he said, you know what, honey? And she said, no, what, dear? He said, I've come to the conclusion, you're bad luck. (laughs) The story is told of uh, a a pastor, a doctor, and an engineer who were all out golfing one morning, and while waiting for a particularly slow group of golfers in front of them, the engineer fumed and said, "What's, what's with these guys? We must have been waiting 15 minutes on every hole so far. I don't understand what their problem is. The doctor chimed in. He said, I don't know either, but I've never seen such nonsense, man. They're driving around in circles. They're driving this way, that way. They're driving back towards the tee box. It's like they don't even know where they're going or what they're looking for. And the pastor said, well, you know what? Here comes the marshal. Let's have a word with him. And as the marshal approached, he said, sir, you know, what's with the group ahead of us? They're rather slow, aren't they? And the marshal replied, well, yeah, they are, but uh, that's a group of uh, firefighters. Uh, And every one of them lost their sight, saving our clubhouse from a fire last year, so we always let them play for free any time they want to play. And at at that, the group was, you know, stunned, and they were silent, and they thought for a moment, and the pastor said, you know what, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that. I I think tonight I'll say a special prayer for them, and I'll also ask God to forgive my bad attitude. And the doctor said, you know what, that's a good idea. Not only will I do that, but I'll go to an ophthalmologist friend of mine and see if they'll, that he'll see them and if there's anything to do that maybe can help them restore their sight. And the engineer, having heard this, he took it in and he thought himself for a couple of minutes. He said, well, then, you know what, let me ask you something. Why can't these guys just play at night? The following story is told of four brothers who all left home and went on to college, subsequently becoming very successful doctors and lawyers. And years later, they were sitting around talking at dinner, and they discussed the Christmas gifts that they had sent to their mother who lived in a state far away from each of those, those men. The first one said, I had a big house built for mama this year. The second said, I had a $100,000 theater built in that house for her. The third said, well, I had a new Mercedes delivered to her house with a chauffeur to take her anywhere that she wanted to go. And the fourth one said, listen to this. He said, you know how mama loved reading the scriptures and you know too that she can't read anymore because she can't see very well. 
said, well, I met a priest who told me about a parrot that can recite the entire Bible. It took 20 priests 12 years to teach him, and all I had to do to buy that parrot was to pledge to contribute $100,000 a year for 20 years to the church. And he said, let me tell you something. It was worth it. All Mama has to do is name a chapter and a verse, and the parrot will recite it in its entirety. Well, the other brothers were impressed, and they were waiting to find out the results of their gifts and how Mama enjoyed those. And several weeks after Christmas, each of them got the following letters. It says, Dear Milton, the house that you built is so huge, and I only live in one room, and I have to clean the whole house. Thanks anyway. Love, Mama. The second brother, Dear Marvin, I'm too old to travel. I stay home. I have my groceries delivered, so I never use the car. And the driver you hired, well, you know what? His political views are opposite mine. The thought was good. Thanks anyway. Love, Mama. Dear Manny, you gave me an expensive theater with Dolby sound. It could hold 50 people, but all my friends are dead. I've lost my hearing. I'm nearly blind. I never use it. Thanks for the gesture just the same. Finally, dearest Melvin, you're the only one of my sons to have the good sense to give a little thought to your gift. That chicken was delicious. (laughs) You know... One of my favorite stories is told of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, and they were out on a camping trip, and after a good meal, they lay down for the night, and they went to sleep. And several hours had passed, and Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend and said, Watson, I've got a question for you. When you look up into the sky, I want you to tell me what you see. And Watson replied, well, sir, I see millions and millions of stars. He goes, well, Watson, what does that tell you? And he thought for a moment, and he said, well, sir, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. He said, Holmes, what does it tell you? He said, Watson, you know, when I look up and see all those stars, it tells me someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Anyway, the story is told of uh, an atheist who's living next door to an old woman who was a Christian. And every day he could hear her praying and praising God for all the things that he had done for her. One day, however, the old woman fell on hard times and she had no food in her house And the atheist overheard her praying to God to please send her some food. So the atheist goes to the grocery store thinking he was going to fix this gal once and for all. Buys two bags of groceries. After placing them on our front porch, he rings her bell and then hid in some nearby bushes. When the woman comes to the door and she sees these bags of groceries, she started giving thanks to the Lord for sending the food. At that point, the happy atheist jumped from the bushes and said, Aha! The Lord didn't send you those groceries. It was I who put them there. And without even a pause, the old woman shot back, Praise you, dear Lord Jesus. Not only did you send me groceries, but you had the devil pay for them. (laughs) I love that story. 
You know, the story is told of a man who had a reputation for being overly self-confident. In fact, his confidence came dangerously close to prideful arrogance. Consider the following true story. Jim and his wife, Mary, were avid outdoors people who loved, among other things, they loved to go camping, running, rock climbing, anything that had to do with outdoor adventure. Well, on a specific camping trip, Jim, as was his custom, would get up early in the morning before Mary to go out for a run. One particular morning, Mary had uh, heard a commotion that was going outside the tent. And when she looked outside, she saw Jim in full run, just a full sprint, as he was running as fast as he could around a picnic table being chased by a huge grizzly bear. And this bear was gaining ground. This bear was just about ready to jump on Jim's back. And Mary yelled out, honey, look out. And Jim looked over with a smile on his face and said, don't worry, babe, I'm one lap up on him. The story is told of a time when the CIA had an opening for an assassin. And after all the background checks, interviews, and testing were done, there were three finalists. The two were men, and one was a woman. For the final test, the CIA agents took one of the men to a large metal door, handed him a gun, and said, we must know that you will follow your instructions no matter what the circumstances, and inside this room, you will find your wife sitting in a chair. You're to go in, and you're to shoot her. The man looked at him and said, you can't. Yeah, there's a desperate need for a marriage seminar in this church. <laughs> I sensed it, but now I know it's for sure. It's an affirmation. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. You can't be serious. I could never shoot my wife. And the agent said, then you're not the right man for this job. Take your wife and go home. Second man was in another room at the time, had not heard the instructions. They came to him, gave him the same instructions. He took the gun, went into the room. All was quiet for about five minutes. The man came out with tears in his eyes and said, I tried, but there's no way I could ever kill my wife. The agent said, then you don't have what it takes. Take your wife and go home. Finally, it was the woman's turn. She was given the instructions to go into a room and to kill her husband. She took the gun, went into the room. Shots were heard, one shot after another. Then there was screaming, crashing, and banging on the walls. After a few moments, all was quiet. The door opened slowly, and there stood the woman. She wiped the sweat from her brow and said, you didn't tell me this gun was loaded with blanks, so I had to beat him to death with the chair. (laughs) Stories told of a uh, teenager who had just gotten his driving permit. He asked his father, who was a pastor, if they could discuss the use of the family car. His father took him to a study. And he said this to him, I'll make you a deal, son. You bring up your grades, you study your Bible a little more, and you get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. About a month went by, the boy came back to his dad and asked if they could discuss once again the use of the car. His father took him into a study, and he said, son, you know what, I'm proud of you. I noticed that your grades have improved. I noticed that every day you were studying your Bible and doing your devotions diligently, He says, but there's one thing that I'm troubled by, and that's the fact that you still haven't got your hair cut. You know, the young man thought about it for a moment, waited, and he said, you know what, Dad? In that time when I was studying my Bible, I happened to notice that Samson had long hair, Moses had long hair, and I believe Jesus had long hair. To which his father replied and said, well, you know what? That's all true. And you probably also noticed in your studies that they walked everywhere they went. 
Have you ever noticed how easy it is to see the flaws of others while being blind to similar ones in our own life? You know, if so, you may enjoy the following story told by a woman. It's actually a true story. She writes the following. She says, while waiting for my first appointment in the reception room of a new dentist, I noticed his certificate, which bore his full name. Suddenly, I remembered that a tall, handsome, athletic boy with the same name had been in my high school class some 30 years ago. Says upon seeing him, however, I quickly discarded any such thought. This bald, heavy-set, gray-haired man with a deeply lined face was way too old to have been my classmate. <laughs> Says after he had examined my teeth, I asked him if he had attended the local high school, and he said yes. And I said, "Well, when did you graduate?" And he answered, "The class of '74." Why? She said, "Well, you were in my class." And he looked at me closely and then said. I don't remember you. What class did you teach? <laughs> Ouch. Oh. I was thinking of saving it for Mother's Day, but. <laughs> the story is told of a woman who, after a <clears throat> lengthy illness, died and arrived at the gate of heaven. And while she was waiting for Peter to greet her, she peeked through the gates and she saw a beautiful setting before her, a beautiful banquet table and sitting all around were her parents and other people she had loved and had died before her. They saw her and they began calling her greetings to her and they were shouting out, how are you? It's good to see you. We've been waiting for you. Peter came by and the woman said to him, this is such a wonderful place. How do I get in? And he said, all you have to do is spell a word for me. She said, a word? What word? He said, all you have to do is spell love. She said, love, L-O-V-E. And he said, ah, that's great, and opened the gates, and in she went. About two years later, Peter came to the same woman and asked her to watch the gates of heaven for him, since he wanted to take a day off. And uh, while guarding the gates of heaven, the woman's husband arrived. And she said, I'm so surprised to see you. How have you been? He said, you know what? Oh, I've been doing great since you died. He said, I married that beautiful young nurse who took care of you while you were ill. And then I won the lottery, if you can believe it. And I sold that little house you and I I lived in. I bought a big mansion for my new wife and I. And we've traveled all over the world. And we were on vacation. And I went water skiing today. And I fell. and, And the next thing I knew, I hit my head. And, well, here I am. And he said, this is such a great place. What do I do to get in? And she said, well, all you got to do is spell a word. He goes, well, what word? She said, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) Told of a minister who dies. And he's waiting in line at the pearly gates. And ahead of him is a guy who's dressed in sunglasses, a loud shirt, leather jacket, and jeans. Peter addresses the man and says, Who are you so that I may know whether or not to admit you into the kingdom of heaven? The guy replies, I'm Joe Cohen, taxi driver in New York City. Peter looks at the the book of life, he smiles, he sees the man's name, and he says, take this silken robe, this golden staff, and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the taxi driver goes into heaven with his robe and his staff, and it's the minister's turn. He stands erect, and he booms out as loudly as he can, I'm Joseph Snow, pastor of First Baptist Church for the past 43 years. Peter consults the list again, he sees his name, he says, that's great. Here, take this cotton robe and wooden staff, and enter the kingdom of heaven. 
The minister, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That man was a taxi driver. He gets a silken robe and a golden staff, and I get a cotton robe and a wooden staff? That can't be right. Peter said, well, you know what? Up here, we reward by results. While you preached, people slept. And while Joe drove, people prayed. And... The story is told of a little boy by the name of Jimmy who, after Sunday school and church, went out to lunch with his family. And uh, as the food arrived, little Jimmy volunteered for the first time ever to pray, said, Dad, I want to pray today. And so obviously wanted to encourage his son's desire. His father said, okay, Jimmy, go ahead, you pray. So with heads bowed, Jimmy began, he began to pray, and he said, Dear Harold, thank you for this day. For mommy and daddy, for Sunday school where I learned how to pray for this food, amen. A big smile on his face, finished, and as you can imagine, everyone at the table was a bit curious at Jimmy's address of God. Finally, Jimmy's dad said, Jimmy, um, I'm curious about, when you were praying, why did you call God Harold? He said, well, because that's his name, and he kept eating. He said, well, what do you mean that's his name? He said, well, where, where did you learn God's name is Harold? He said, I learned it today in Sunday school. He said, Sunday school? He said, yeah, my teacher taught me. And he kept eating, and his dad was still curious. He said, your, your teacher taught you that God's name is Harold? And, you know, Jimmy's getting a little impatient. At this. He said, yeah, Dad, that's what I learned today. He, go, he said, well, I don't understand. He said, you know, they, she taught us that prayer. I said, what prayer? He said, this, the, the prayer, Dad. Our Father, who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. <laughs> the uh, story is told of a kindergarten teacher who on Teacher Appreciation Day was receiving gifts from her pupils. The first pupil to come forward was the florist's son, and he handed her a gift that was wrapped, and she shook it, and she held it above her head, and she said to him, I bet I know what this is. There's flowers in here. And sure enough, as she opened it, there were flowers, and the student was just amazed at how this woman would know this. The next child that came forward was the, uh, the, the daughter of a candy store owner. Handed her a box, opened up the box, shook it above her head, and said, I'll bet you there's a box of candy in here. And the, I mean, the students were going crazy. It's like, well, how does she know this? And opened it up, and sure enough, there's a box of candy. And uh, the third student who came forward was a little boy who handed a, a gift in a bag, and she held this bag, and it was leaking, and she knew that her, this boy's mom and dad owned the area liquor store. And so she could only begin to imagine what it was, and she tasted it, and she said, is it, is it a bottle of wine? And he goes, no, and he's giggling, and he goes, no, it's not a bottle of wine. And she tasted it again a little bit longer this time, and said, is it champagne? He goes, no, no, it's not champagne. And, and she looked at him and said, okay, I give up. What is it? He goes, it's a puppy. <laughs> and, and just the whole idea of expectations, just sometimes not being fulfilled. You know, the, the point is that things aren't always as they appear at first glance.
One of my all-time favorite stories is told of the pirate who walked into a bar and the bartender said, hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. What happened to you? You look terrible. He said, what do you mean? I'm fine. He said, well, what about that wooden leg? You didn't have that before. The pirate said, well, we were in a battle at sea and a cannonball hit my leg, but the doc fixed me up and I'm fine, gave me this leg, and sure enough, I'm doing good. He said, yeah, but what about that hook? Last time you were in, you had two hands. He goes, well, we're in another battle and jumped on board an enemy ship and we got in a sword fight. And next thing you know, somebody just took a sword and swiped my hand right off. But the doc, he gave me this hook and, you know, fixed me up and I'm doing fine. He said, what about that eye patch? He said, you had two eyes last time you were in here. He goes, well, we were out at sea one day and I went out and I was up on the deck and I looked up above and I heard some birds squawking. And next thing I know, one of those birds dropped some doo-doo in my eye. He goes, you lost an eye from bird doo-doo? He said, well, actually, no, it was the first day with my hook. (laughs) You know, the story is told of uh, a couple of uh, gas company employees. One was a senior supervisor. The other was a trainee who were going about making their rounds, and they drove to an alley, and they parked their truck at one end of the alley. They walked along the alleyway reading the meters. And they came to the end of the alley, and when they were at the end of the alley, the two were reading a meter, and the woman in the house was looking outside and watching what was going on, not really sure what was happening. And unbeknownst to her, they came up with a bet, and the older man said, hey, listen, I'll bet you I can beat you in a sprint back to the truck, and whoever loses buys lunch. And sure enough, man, these two just take off, and they're running down the alley. And as they're running down the alley, they hear something behind them. They hear, like, uh, they hear another set of footsteps. They hear somebody breathing hard, and they almost get to the truck, and they stop, and they turn around, and here's this woman behind them. And she looked at him, and, and he, they looked at her and said, what are you doing? She said, I don't know. I was looking out the window. I saw you working on my gas meter. When I see two gas men take off running, I think I should run too. Things aren't always as they appear, and as an example of that is found in the story that's told of a Chicago, Illinois man who uh, left the, stone, the snow-filled streets of Chicago for a vacation in Florida. It says his wife was on a business trip and, and was preparing to meet him there the following day, and when he reached his destination, his hotel, he decided to send her off a quick email, and for some reason in the transmission, he missed one of the letters. And he sent it, unfortunately, he sent it in, uh, to a, an elderly preacher's wife whose husband had just passed away only the day before. It says, and uh, while, while she was grieving, she checked her email. And she saw this email and she yelled, let out a piercing scream and she passed out and fainted at the floor. At the sound of her scream, her family came running in to see what was going on. And here's what they saw in front of them on the screen. It said, honey... Just got checked in. Everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> P.S. Sure is hot down here. <clears throat> Stories told of a Catholic priest, a Pentecostal preacher, and a rabbi who all served as chaplains to the students of Northern Michigan University in Marquette. And they would gather together two or three times a week for coffee and to talk shop, to share notes, thoughts, whatever. One day, obviously, they had too much time on their hand. Uh, they made the comment that preaching to people really wasn't that hard, and a real challenge would be to preach to a bear. And one thing led to another, and the bets were on the table, and they decided, hey, we're going to take a seven-day experiment, go out into the woods, find a bear, and preach to it. 
So at the end of the seven days, they all gather together once again to discuss the experiences, and Father O'Flannery spoke first. And they noticed that his arm was in a sling, he was on crutches and had various bandages. He said, well, he says, I went out to the woods and I found me a bear. And when I found him, I began to read to him from the Baltimore Catechism. Well, that bear wanted nothing to do with me, and he began to slap me a boot. So I quick grabbed me the holy water and sprinkled it all over him, and saints be praised, he became as gentle as a lamb. The bishop's coming out next week, First Communion and Confirmation. (laughs) Reverend Billy Bob spoke next. He was in a wheelchair. He had both arms and a cast and a leg and an IV drip, and his best fire and brimstone oratory proclaimed, Well, brothers, you know we don't sprinkle, we dunk. He said, and I went out and found me a bear, and I began to read him from God's space, the holy word. But that bear wanted nothing to do with me. So I began to wrestle with him. We wrestled up one hill, downhill, another hill, up another hill, down another hill, and finally we found a creek, and I slam dunked him. <laughs> and sure enough, he became gentle as a lamb. And then we spent the next four days just in the word. Finally, they looked down at the rabbi who happened to be laying in a hospital bed. He was in a body cast, had traction with IVs, monitors running in and out of him. The rabbi looked up and said, oi, the preaching was easy. He said, but the bear got a bit touchy when it came to the circumcision. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite all-time stories is told of the petite elderly woman, and that's a nice way of saying, you know, a little old lady. That's the politically correct term. <laughs> A petite elderly woman who lived alone, and one night while lying in bed reading her Bible, she heard a strange noise followed by the sight of a flashlight flickering in a darkened hallway. Certain it was a burglar, she shouted from the passage she was reading at the time. She said, stop right where you are, Acts 2.38. The burglar froze in place, giving the woman an opportunity to call the police. And when the police arrived, they were amazed to find that the burglar had not moved a muscle. Curious, they asked the woman what she had said or did to get such a response, and she said, all I know is I was reading through my Bible, and I cried out, Acts 2.38, which says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Amazed, the policeman, as he led the handcuffed burglar to the police car, asked him why, you know, this little old lady yelling out a Bible verse would stop him. And he said, a Bible verse? And the policeman said, yeah. She said she yelled out, Acts 2.38. He said, Acts 2.38. I said, I thought she said, stop right where you are. I have an Acts and 2.38s. <laughs> the story is told. A, uh, a local United Way office realized it had never received a donation from the town's most successful attorney. person in charge of contributions called the lawyer to persuade him to contribute by saying the following, our research sir, Sir, shows that out of a yearly income of at least a half a million dollars, you have not given a penny to charity. Wouldn't you like to give back to the community in some way? The lawyer thought about it for a moment and replied, said, well, first of all, did your research also show that my mother is dying after a long illness and that her medical bills are several times her annual income? Embarrassed, you know, United Way representative mumbled, well, no, I didn't realize. He said, well, or that my brother, a disabled veteran, is blind and confined to a wheelchair. And the stricken United Way rep began to stammer, you know, out an apology, and the lawyer interrupted her apology and said, or that my sister's husband died recently in a traffic accident and leaving her penniless with three children to support. 
And by now, this rep is just like thrown through a loop, you know. And the guy's feeling like he's got her up against the ropes. And, and she's like, I had no idea. And on a roll, he, he, once again, he cut her off and he said, you know what? So if I didn't give money to any of them, why should I give any to you? <laughs> One of my all-time favorite stories is told of two friends who for many years enjoyed a variety of outdoor activities together. Among these activities were hunting and fishing and camping and hiking. And while on a particular hiking trip uh, in Alaska, they were startled by a giant Kodiak bear which stood on its hind legs at about seven feet tall. And at the sight of this flesh-eating beast, one of the men immediately sat down and began to take off his, his bulky hiking boots as quickly as possible, started rummaging through his backpack and found a pair of running shoes, started to put them on. And his buddy's watching all this, looking at the bear, looking at him do this. He goes, hey, man, we're never going to outrun that bear. And his friend keeps lacing up his shoes, said, hey, man, I'm not worried about the bear. All I got to do is outrun you. You know, the story is told of a young man by the name of Larry who was an avid golfer, and he found himself one afternoon with a few hours to spare before he had to be home, always had his golf clubs in his trunk in case he was able to do something like this. So he heard out, hurried out to one of his favorite uh, golf courses and thought he could at least get in nine. So as he goes out, you know, there's nobody around. He figured, oh, this is going to be great. I can just kind of blow and go. And, you know, he goes up to the tee. And just as he's about ready to tee off, this older man comes shuffling over. And he goes, hey, Sonny, do you mind if I join you? And he went, oh, man. He goes, no, that's fine. You know, and, and uh, so, you know, the guy, the older guy joins him. And, you know, he doesn't hit the ball far, but he hits it straight. And he kind of he keeps up with, with the pace. And so, you know, Larry's not too upset about the fact that this guy joined him. And, 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 you know, and it turns out that the guy had played this course for years and years and years. And so it worked out fine. Finally, they reached the ninth fairway, and Larry found himself with a pretty tough shot. He had hit a, he had a, hit a ball, and it landed right behind a pine tree that was probably 40 to 50 feet tall. And and his ball was directly behind the tree in line where, where, where the green was. You know, and he stood there, and he was trying to figure out what to do. And finally, the old man gave him a little advice. You know, he said, you know, when I was your age, Sonny, I just hit that ball right over that tree. <laughs> you know, and that's all Larry needed to hear, right? So he cranks up and just wails on this thing, and sure enough, he catches the tree right dead in the center of the trunk, about 20 feet off the ground. The ball comes flying right back at him, almost hits him and kills him, and he was just stunned by all this, and he was just standing there in shock, looking at his next shot, and, and he looked over, and the old man was kind of smiling, and, and he said, what's so funny? He goes, of course, uh, when I was your age, that tree was only about three feet tall. <laughs> You know, perspective. <laughs>